Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. On August 8th, 2022, the FBI executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, the residence of former President Donald Trump in Palm Beach, Florida. For the following months, the public has tuned into the legal and political twists and turns, including the public release of the search warrant, property receipt, and search warrant affidavit, the appointment of a special master, and a trip to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. To discuss this case, I'm pleased to have two former federal prosecutors on the show to tell us what we need to know if one of our clients gets a visit from law enforcement. So I'm pleased to welcome Barbara McQuaid to the show. She's a professor at the University of Michigan Law School, where she teaches courses in criminal law, criminal procedure, data privacy, and national security and civil liberties. She's also a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. She served as U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan from 2010 to 2017. Appointed by President Obama, Ms. McQuaid was the first woman to serve in her position. Before becoming U.S. Attorney, Ms. McQuaid was an Assistant U.S. Attorney in Detroit for 12 years, serving as Deputy Chief of the National Security Unit. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be with you. And I'd also like to welcome to the show Renato Mariotti. He's a partner in Brian Cave's Chicago office. He's an accomplished trial attorney who focuses on many types of complex high-stakes litigation, including securities class actions, derivative-related claims, and cyber theft. Mr. Mariotti's work includes defending firms and individuals in enforcement actions and conducting internal investigations and helping trading firms develop internal compliance programs to ensure that traders don't engage in disruptive trading practices. He's a former federal prosecutor in the Securities and Commodities Fraud Section of the U.S. Attorney's Office, and he actually spent nine years at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Illinois. Renato, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Barbara, let's start with you. By the time the FBI or local law enforcement is knocking on the door of someone's home or business, a tremendous amount of investigation and legwork has already been done. So can you describe that process from a prosecutor's perspective? Yes, Dave. So as you know, to obtain a search warrant, a prosecutor has to satisfy a magistrate judge that there's probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed and that evidence of that crime will be found in the location to be searched. And that requires a detailed affidavit reciting all of the facts that amount to probable cause. And so for that reason, the search warrant you know, can never be the first step in an investigation. It has to have come after the prosecutor has been able to assemble all of that evidence. I think another factor that goes into a prosecutor's decision about this is they try to do as much as they can in the what they call the covert stage of an investigation before anybody knows about it. So you might use grand jury subpoenas to gather records, maybe even consensual monitoring with an informant, uh, surveillance, uh, all of these kinds of things that can be done without exposing the investigation to the public. Once you execute a search warrant, 
the investigation is now overt. You must knock and announce. You must give the owner of the property an inventory and a copy of the warrant. And so now the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. So you are right in asking this question that a search warrant comes uh, after a great deal of investigation has already occurred. And in this case, it seemed to me that because everything kind of became public uh, through the court system because of uh, the Trump Trump attorney's motion practice and the like, is that a typical process or or is it atypical? It's really unusual. You know, typically the FBI will come or whatever uh, agency is involved in the investigation will execute the warrant and leave quietly. And the property owner, most of the time, doesn't want the world to know that they're under investigation. And then they will go and assess the evidence take a look at it and see whether it advances the investigation. Sometimes that's the end of it. You know, they, they find no evidence. It's a, it's a dry hole or they find, you know, some evidence, but not enough to make a case and the case goes away. Other times they find evidence or combined with other evidence they've compiled from other aspects of the investigation, an indictment is eventually filed. And only at that point, typically, does the public become aware that this is even a case. And it's at that point that the defendant typically has an opportunity to challenge the, the the search by moving to suppress the evidence if they believe and can argue that there was something improper in the search, whether there was a lack of probable cause or some false statement that was used to obtain the warrant and the like. So the idea that the property owner announces it early and then files this very public challenge is really unusual. And Renato, let's bring you into the conversation. From a defense perspective, what do you think was gained or maybe it hurt actually hurt what President Trump's lawyers were trying to do by making all of this public? Well, I think a lot was lost uh, in there uh, for them in, in terms of the, the long run and how I would defend the case. Because by bringing their own action, for example, they forced themselves to take positions on issues. I mean, they've been trying very hard not to and thus far have gotten away with trying to play it both ways. But they're very rapidly approaching the point in this process where they have to say one way or the other what their position on things is. Uh, for myself, I, I frequently represent clients who are the subject of uh, federal criminal investigations, and I usually avoid taking positions for as long as possible. They've also forced themselves into a situation where they're very antagonistic early on with the DOJ. You know, that to me is something that I usually don't do early on. In other words, my goal typically on the front end is uh, until there's a reason to, I don't antagonize the DOJ because sometimes it's in my client's interest to actually reach an understanding with the Justice Department. They're basically poking the DOJ in the eye constantly here and setting themselves as an antagonist, uh, up as an antagonist to the DOJ. That may not be ultimately in their client's interest. I think it's a very unusual strategy, as Barb said, but certainly from the perspective of somebody who frequently practices against the Justice Department, uh, it's it's there's reasons why it's unusual, and uh, it's because there's some obvious downsides to doing so. A lot of folks who listen to this podcast are civil litigators, uh, but they have business clients who might get a knock on the door one day. So, what exactly you know should you do as an attorney when a client? gets a knock on the door from local law enforcement. And the most important thing to do if you're if you have a client that is gets a visit from law enforcement or from by the way a civil regulator that's similar, right? The SEC or CFTC or FTC, um, they should immediately you should be telling them not to make statements 
to the government at all. They should say absolutely nothing to the government and say that they want their counsel present. That's the most important thing that I would tell them to do. Then I would immediately engage with a lawyer, whether it's at your own firm or whether you find a lawyer at another firm. Um, you know, somebody like me who represents people who are in this situation all the time to help you work through what the right approach is to take to manage that situation. Sometimes, you know, what you, what I typically am trying to do on the front end is assess the client's potential liability. If the client has a lot of liability, I might be approaching the government, trying to help the government in order to obtain favorable treatment for the client. Sometimes I'm in a situation where actually the client's done nothing wrong and we actually want to affirmatively show the, the government that they're barking up the wrong tree. But often I'm in a situation where it's in between those two extremes. And what we're really trying to do is not only assess liability, but kind of get on top of the issue, uh, manage the issue as, as well as we possibly can to forestall the sort of you know government action that could be devastating to an individual or a company such as an indictment. And Renato, what what rights do clients have to know what the government is taking as they're taking it? So, for example, you know, in the discovery process in civil litigation, you're able to make copies and Bates label things and that sort of thing. But if you watch, you know, Law and Order, for example, they're just walking in and just, you know, going through everything and taking what they want. What are what are a client's rights when they're being searched? So if your premises are the subject of a, ex- a search warrant that's being executed, you have the right to obtain the search warrant. Like you, you should receive a copy of the search warrant itself, which will contain an attachment showing that uh, what you know that, that uh, there's a list of items that has been authorized to be seized, as well as a description of the premises, which will ensure that you know, for example, that your property is actually authorized to be searched, and will also show what the government is authorized to take. You're also entitled to receive an inventory of the items that are seized. That inventory is not always granular; it can be like box of employment records or you know I'll I'll have these let's say a healthcare client where there'll just be hundreds of boxes of records that'll be sort of vaguely described by the government they're not always perfect lists but nonetheless that's what you're entitled to receive you're not entitled to know exactly what the government's investigating you're not entitled to know exactly what their you know posture is towards you and usually and and I'd say it's very rare that you're going to file an action or do anything to try to take the government to task for how they conduct that search prior to indictment, which is what Barb was referring to, um, you know, when she said that that was unusual. Really, the only thing that I might be doing regarding the search uh, might be inquiring with the government regarding items that they've seized that appear to be outside the scope of the search warrant. Got it. And Barbara, in the Trump search warrant case, uh, the former president's lawyers moved for a special master to review some of the documents that the government seized. How often does that happen? And and what is the role of a special master? A special master is really quite rare. Most often what you'll see in a search warrant application and which was included in the Mar-a-Lago search warrant is a, a process that the magistrate is asked to approve and did in this case that the FBI will provide its own filter team. That is agents who are not otherwise going to work on the case, who will take the first review of all of the material, will filter out anything that might be arguably privileged, will pass the rest onto the investigative team, and then uh, the parties can litigate the part that they filtered out. 
On rare occasion, you will see a property owner move for a special master. Most often that gets granted where an attorney's office is searched. And that's because they may have scooped up materials that pertain to third-party clients completely unrelated to the case. If you're a lawyer, presumably you've got lots of files, many of which pertain to lots of other clients who are, are not part of this case at all. And so in those instances, a judge may appoint a special master, and that's someone who is neutral instead of an FBI filter team who is, after all, affiliated with the FBI, the same organizations that's conducting the investigation. Out of an abundance of caution to provide objective, independent oversight, they might appoint a special master, and it's really just a helper for the judge. The judge themselves lacks the time to go through thousands and thousands of documents. And so oftentimes it's a retired judge who gets appointed to this position. We saw that in the cases involving searches of the offices of Rudy Giuliani and Michael Cohen. In both of those instances, it was a retired federal judge, in fact, the same retired federal judge, Barbara Jones, who did those reviews. In this case, we see something a little bit unusual in that President Trump is not an attorney, but I think because he is a former president, um, and this is an investigation, I suppose, that has uh, political overtones, at least uh, alleged suspicions of political overtones, the judge has ordered a special master in this case to review these documents and has appointed a, a sitting but senior status judge out of another district, the Eastern District of New York. It's a little unusual that it's a sitting judge, although sometimes they'll appoint a magistrate judge to do this work. And in fact, the special master has asked a magistrate judge to assist him in, in this review. So it is unusual in any case, and especially unusual in a case of a non-attorney, but I suppose there's nothing ordinary about the case involving a former president. And certainly there's been allegations of I don't know, improprieties, politicization of the FBI in this case, at least by uh, President Trump's team. My assumption is the folks who are on this special review team by the FBI, they have certain standards that they uphold, ethical standards and the like. Um, and so really, it has to be a very strange circumstance to have the special master um, involved. Yes, and I suppose mostly it is for the appearance of fairness as opposed to actual fairness. But one of the things the group identified is that they've already admitted to making a mistake or two of, of failing to filter out some things that were arguably protected by attorney-client privilege. And so I suppose having a neutral uh, person take that review maybe uh, avoids any concerns that uh, mistakes like that are happening or that mistakes like that are a pretext for some sort of deliberate look behind the privilege. Um, so as unusual as it is, I, I suppose in a case like this involving a former president where uh, he is making allegations of uh, partisanship and you know a witch hunt and a hoax and some of these kinds of things, that perhaps a special master uh, can serve to neutralize some of that criticism. And Renato, to your point, I think earlier you talked about it could be bad uh, for your client to antagonize uh, the FBI or local law enforcement or your enforcement agency or the like. Certainly requesting a special master may antagonize um, uh, your opponent from a defense perspective. That's right. So usually, um, look, the government obviously is more powerful than any private litigant ever can. They have all sorts of powers that they can exercise that we cannot and so it, you know, sometimes it, it is in the client's best interest to 
you know, go to the mattresses, so to speak, against the government. I've done that before. I've tried to, I've, I, just a couple of years ago, I tried a case against the, the Justice Department and my client was acquitted, you know, and that was a great result. But uh, usually or often the, there's going to come a point in time in the process in which the client is going to want to reach some sort of resolution with the government, or at the very least, there can be something to be gained from having an understanding with the government regarding certain issues, whether it's about the scope of charges, whether it's about uh, a sentencing issue, um, who's charged, you know, the, who particularly the defendant is. There often can be reasons why. Uh, you may want to uh, negotiate with the government. And so starting off on an antagonistic uh, foot really, to me, only makes sense if there's a concrete gain on the other end of it. And I don't see that here. I mean, what I see from beginning to end, what we've seen from the process thus far is just a whole host of errors uh, by the, the by the former president's team uh, that really got him in this situation. And that was not something that was preordained. In other words, I really believe if I was representing President Trump from the, from the beginning and he was following my advice, we could have gotten to a spot where there was no criminal investigation or search warrant at all. Barbara, do you agree with that point? Yeah. You know, I think that you have to make sure that the government is following all the rules, that uh, they are complying with Rule 41. And, you know, there is court uh, oversight for that purpose. And so if the government should run afoul of things, either inadvertently and unwittingly or because of abuse of their authority, uh, you know, going to the court is a recourse that's available to defendants and their lawyers. Speaking of Rule 41, Renato, are there any other defenses or procedural maneuvers available to someone who's had their business or home searched by the government? I know 41G talks about getting a return of property if there's an unlawful search and seizure. Any other defenses that we need to know about? None that I think are practical that most defendants exercise. I just, I represent businesses and individuals constantly. Uh, that's basically a bread and butter of what I do, representing individuals on uh, businesses that have that are the subject of federal search warrants and or the subjects of federal investigations. And typically, you know, a lot of what is actually achieved in these cases uh, is done through negotiations with the government, not through litigation with the government, because it's at this stage where there's an ongoing criminal investigation, the rights that you have to challenge the government's seizure at this stage before there are charges uh, are very limited, and they're usually not worth the cost uh, for a litigant to to pursue absent very extraordinary circumstances. Understood. So let's talk about the most uh, recent development in the Trump case, which is the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals opinion, which stated a portion of the district court's order that required the government to submit classified documents for the special master's review and also prevented the government from using those documents in its criminal investigation. Barbara, let's start with you. What did you find most interesting about that opinion? The 11th Circuit, of course, was focused solely on this one issue relating to the classified documents that were identified in this case, maybe a hundred or so documents. And the government had asked for a stay of the court's order submitting to the special master for review these 100 documents and asked that they be kind of carved out. And the 11th Circuit agreed and did overturn Judge Cannon in the district court's order as to uh, those hundred or so documents. And I thought what was most salient in their order was this phrase that these documents are uh, a bit of a red herring, this idea that 
President Trump may have declassified them is a, is a red herring. You know, he said, I, I declassified them. And, and what they said is, even if he did, that cannot change the nature, the content of these documents, which to be classified must pertain to the national defense in some way. Uh, because the definition of a classified document is the disclosure of the information will cause uh, grave or exceptionally grave, depending on the level, damage to the national security of the United States. And most certainly, a classified document could not in any way be a personal document of the former president's. So I thought that was very clarifying language and carved out from the rest of the appeal just those documents and got those back into the hands of the government so that they can uh, assess the damage to the intelligence community as a result of that. Now, they continue to have challenges with the ability to use those documents in their criminal investigation. So they've now asked, asked to expedite the appeal of the rest of Judge Cannon's order. But I think that getting those 100 or so documents back was probably the most important and most urgent aspect of all of this. In fact, I believe, going back to Renato's earlier point about how cooperation might be in the best interest of your client, I believe that if Donald Trump himself had not made this all public to the world, it could very well be that the government would have been satisfied just getting its documents back, which is likely what its main goal was, and not even ever saying anything out loud to the rest of the world about this and going quietly about its business. But now that Donald Trump has made this such a cause celeb, I think that it would be very difficult for them to decline to prosecute this case when they prosecute other people for lesser violations of this law. Well, and Barbara, this also started, if I recall, as a referral from an agency who simply just wanted the presidential documents to be brought back to, to the White House or to the agency that, that holds them. Is that correct? Yeah, the National Archives, you know, said, hey, there's a lot of stuff missing here from the Trump administration. Those are ours. They belong to the people and we need them back. And we know that that dispute has been going on since January of 2021. And so, uh, you know, the government kept ratcheting up, but we really need it back. Uh, how, you know, using a grand jury subpoena, the head of the counterintelligence uh, section at the Justice Department personally visited to make sure everything was back. And, you know, finally, based on probable cause that there was still more there, we don't know what the source of that information was, but something that satisfied a judge to believe that there was more material left at, at uh, Mar-a-Lago, and they found 27 more boxes, including some documents in Donald Trump's personal office, not just a storage room. And so I, I think that uh, if things had gone quietly, perhaps these documents would just be safely back in the hands of the National Archives. But, you know, Donald Trump often uses uh, the theory that the best defense is a good offense. And so here we are. And Renato, uh, back to you. What else did you find uh, of interest in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals opinion? Well, I thought what was very interesting to me is that they really went beyond the four corners of what they needed to do to reach a result there. In other words, they actually had a pretty, as, as Barb just mentioned a moment ago, they have a very limited emotion that they were considering. They could have written an opinion that was very narrowly drafted in order to um, ach you know, achieve the result that they needed to, uh, to resolve that motion and say no more. But I think they went in my view, they went beyond that. They gave, uh, I'd say, uh, a lot of guidance uh, to the uh, district judge, Judge Cannon. And I think that they were basically sending a message to her about how they expected um, this matter to, to uh, be conducted going forward. Uh, at least they were implying that. And it remains to be seen whether or not she does so and whether or not uh, a panel of the 11th Circuit, uh, you know, 
takes a similar view, uh, you know, as to the, uh, the the full appeal from the Justice Department. Well, and I think that goes to your point earlier, which is maybe it's better to cooperate because you really don't know what uh, the courts are going to do, especially in a case like this. I'm sure that's uh, something that you would uh, subscribe to. Yeah, I mean, certainly here I, I have the same view as Barb's, which often has often happens. She's a pretty smart person, so I like to agree with her uh, whenever possible. But in, in all seriousness, um, this is a case that I think would never have gone this far if competent counsel were handling the negotiations. I mean, usually when one of my clients receives a grand jury subpoena, that is a, a, a very alarming event. All hands on deck moment where we where the client realizes the seriousness of the situation and you quickly try to resolve matters with the government and and figure out the scope of the problem. If that all hands on deck mentality occurred here, there would have just been a negotiated resolution in which the government would have silently, non-publicly came in with the permission of Trump uh, and his team would have retrieved whatever documents they needed and we would not be here on a podcast talking about it. But instead, uh, obviously, a different approach was taken, and here we are. All right, so we are sadly coming to the end of our time together, so I wanted to get your final thoughts, in particular what attorneys, perhaps civil litigators uh, and white-collar attorneys can learn from the Trump case. Barbara, ladies first, let's start with you. I know sometimes it seems appealing to have a lawyer who's going to fight, fight, fight for you. You know, all these TV lawyers talk about how hard they're going to fight for their clients and scorched earth litigation. But I have to say, I, I find that the defense attorneys who have the best results are the ones who come in early, cooperate, share information, and try to persuade us to either not charge a case. And that sometimes happens. I don't want to charge a case only to lose. And so sometimes if the defense can come in and point out all the arguments they're going to make at trial or all the ways my evidence is lacking, that can be very persuasive. And so being forthcoming can be very helpful to a client. Or it may persuade me to file some lesser charge. Maybe instead of charging uh, you know, the Espionage Act, punishable by 20 years in prison, I file some lesser charge, uh, a misdemeanor or something with uh, a lower uh, top penalty. Or maybe the best result for you is to plead guilty and figure out a way to cooperate against others to mitigate the situation and get a sentence to be lower. So I think early negotiation is so incredibly important. And if instead you just dig in and fight, 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 it's likely that the matter is simply going to escalate and get worse. And so that would be my advice is you know get in early, talk as much as you can, find out as much as you can. And be as forthcoming as possible. Of course, you know, it may be that your, your client has bad facts that you don't want to share, and, and that's that's fine. But the more you can have a meeting of the minds, I think, between the lawyers, the more you can resolve the case to the client's benefit. All right, great trips. And Renato, what, what final thoughts do you have on what we can learn from the Trump case? Sure. So first of all, I would say for civil litigators, one important tip is don't try to stretch yourself outside your limits. You know, a lot of us, particularly if you're in a smaller firm or you're solo, you'll you'll stretch you'll take something that's not quite in your strike zone and you'll kind of muddle through it. Uh, cr- criminal matters, white collar matters, and government enforcement matters are not a spot where you want to be winging it or uh, trying to muddle through. Very bad idea. And, and I, I guess my approach, you know, to these cases, it requires a lot. I think you you need a lot of nuance. A lot of EQ and a lot of experience to handle and defend government investigations well. 
I agree with Barb that often the best approach is to be cooperative and engage with the government. Sometimes it's not. I've, I've definitely done the scorched earth uh, approach as well, but it really requires, it really requires a lot of judgment, experience, and an, an, an intelligent assessment of how best to actively manage the situation. It's like, you know, when you have cancer or something, you want a trained professional who you put that you put that matter in that person's hand and that person knows, do we try chemo? Are we going to aggressively try to get this out? Obviously, there's going to be some damage at the end. There may be, there may, may be a guilty plea or a cooperation or whatever may end up be happening at the end. But the goal is to manage it and make it as, as, re, as reasonable of an outcome as possible. And I think uh, the best way to do that is to have somebody with a lot of experience in that area. Excellent advice. All right. Barbara McQuaid, Renato Mariotti, thank you both uh, so much for joining us for today's podcast. Our pleasure. Thank you. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section's mental health and wellness task force. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Diana Uchiyama to the show. Dr. Diana is a lawyer and licensed clinical psychologist and serves as the executive director of the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program. It's your first time on the show, Dr. Diana. We're so glad to have you on today. Thank you so much for including me on this segment. All right. So what's your first tip for today? So I thought I would talk about maintaining health and wellness as we exit out of the post-pandemic stage. And I think what we recognize, or maybe we don't, is that the world has changed pretty significantly and many people are having a difficult time adjusting to all the changes. And what we know about lawyers and judges and law students is based on our personality type, we're really not a resilient group of people leading to higher rates of mental health, substance use and maladaptive coping mechanisms. So I guess the question is, do you consider yourself resilient? And most people answer yes, but the reality is, is that most of us who are type A perfectionists are the least resilient bunch of people that you would ever hope to meet. So part of navigating change is creating flexibility in who we are and in changes in the world. And right now, COVID and the war in the Ukraine, all of these things have fueled high levels of anxiety. You know, you hear about COVID rising in Europe again, and how will that impact all of us? But, you know, the reality is COVID gives us a chance to look back and say, what did I do well? And what did I do poorly during the pandemic? Did I drink more? Did I drug more? Did I develop more mental health or anxiety problems? And so we like to say, we, we encourage people to manage stress appropriately through healthy coping me mechanisms, not mechanisms that are bad for you, that undermine you, that undermine your practice. We want you to become aware of where does your mind go to under high periods of stress? Do you automatically become more pessimistic or negative? And that's where cognitive restructuring to change the way you look about at things and the way you view the world can change, right? How is the narrative you are using uh, about all the changes impacting the way you're living your life? And so we like to say, let's talk about 
your story in a much more positive way. The other thing is lawyers tend to really be hard on themselves about mistakes and failures. And we say, use it as an opportunity to learn something. That if we view failure as an opportunity to learn more about what we need moving forward, that we can become more resilient just through that lens. And we like to encourage people to be much more thoughtful in any response they make about situations, right? Most of us who are type A get more irritable when things don't go our way or angry. And we always tell people, take a pause. Don't react. Be thoughtful because when your amygdala, the the emotional part of your brain hijacks the frontal lobe where good thinking takes place, you cannot respond appropriately for a period of time. So another tip I would say is to view the changes in the world as an opportunity for personal growth, for personal reflection, and positive changes. Things may not have gone well uh, for a period of time, but that doesn't mean that change is impossible moving forward. So remain optimistic and don't allow pessimism to win. Because if you focus on the negative, it robs you of hope and a belief in your own ability to change things into more positive outcomes. And we want you to develop an internal locus of control. What does that mean? It means stop blaming the external forces as if they're acting on you. Because many times when we do this, we don't take ownership over our own behaviors. And what we like to say at our lap is you have complete control over your own internal mechanisms. And so to be aware that the minute you start blaming circumstances and the people in your life as creating the problems is the minute that we need to shift the focus internally to say, what can you do to change? Do you need a new job? Do you need healthier relationships? Do you need more social connections? Do you recognize that positive change is possible? Can we change the narrative of your life into a more positive uh, lens so that you can navigate the world with much more ease? And what the last thing I'll talk about is flexibility in thinking, that when we become more rigid in wanting certain outcomes, we lose the ability to navigate difficult circumstances. So through the flexibility, like when you're younger and you can do a cartwheel and a handstand and bend backwards, as we age, as the world uh, shapes us and changes us, we can become much more rigid and inflexible, which leads to more difficult outcomes for people. So when you think of yourself, think of yourself as how flexible am I? Am I willing to look at things from a different perspective and lens? And can I challenge my type A perfectionist thinking so that I can take in more viewpoints and more ways of thinking to create positive change in my life? So we like at LAP, we always tell people, you are completely in control of your life and your outcome, and let's together work toward positive changes for your future. Well, I love that, Dr. Diana. Thank you so much for being on. I I really can tell uh, we're going to have some great tips uh, in the future from you. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. 
Well, that's all we have for our show today, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung, without the hyphen, at gmail.com, and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at our next litigation section event. So please make plans to join us at the Professional Success Summit in Los Angeles, October 26th through the 28th. This is a great conference and CLE event dedicated to maximizing the potential of litigators from racial and ethnic backgrounds that have been traditionally underrepresented in the legal profession. To find out more and for registration information, please go to ambar.org slash PSS. If you like our show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make the show possible. Thanks to Michelle Obert, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.